Hello, and welcome back. For today's podcast, we're joined by Robbie Steele from Kent Wildlife Trust, who's speaking with us about the more technical side of conservation and some of the brilliantly innovative ways he and his colleagues are taking on challenges. He covers how the effects of Kent's newly arrived bison will be monitored using remote sensing, tracked using special collars, and how technical advances are creating greater efficiency in storing data. If you like this episode and want to follow more on this project, please follow the links in the description. If you'd like to support us, you can make a donation at restoreplant.org or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Enjoy the conversation. So today I'm joined by Robbie Steele from Kent Wildlife Trust, who's going to be talking with us about some, some of the more technical sides of conservation. So Robbie, welcome. Hi, yeah, good to be here. Fantastic. So Robbie, would you like to start by telling us a little bit about what your, your background and what it is that you do? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I've got a background in conservation, um, did a biology and bioscience um, undergrad and master's, and initially went in very much expecting the same things that I think everyone does um, of wanting to go and do data collection in the field, um, practical conservation work, all of that, just from loving animals and finding it really interesting, but then ended up um, not particularly enjoying my um, research projects, data collection side anyway, um, which was kind of just walking around the woods, pulling up Himalayan balsam and seeing how the sort of vegetation community recovered after that. Um, But really enjoyed the data analysis side of it. And so for my master's project, I decided to go fully desk-based using data that other people had collected um, and kind of doing my own thing with that, interpreting it, modeling it. And that kind of got me really interested in in the modeling, in the tech, in the kind of data analysis side more than the practical conservation, um, which really just brought me down this this route. Um, And I got my first job in an environmental record center, which are kind of quite unknown entities really, but they do sort of really, really vital work um, collecting, storing and supplying biological data to um, various organizations, including wildlife trusts on a um, county scale. So you get that really kind of little local conservation projects will kind of send their data in and the record center will get it in the right format and then make sure that ecological consultants, local authorities know what's happening in each area, know what species are there. Um, and that really gave me the skills to get this this kind of job at Kent Wildlife Trust um, and really kick on sort of the technical side of things. All right, fantastic. Do you want to tell us a little bit about um, GIS and remote sensing? Like what it yeah. is and how it works? So GIS is um, Geographic Information Systems, um, which sounds quite fancy and intimidating, but is really just an Excel spreadsheet with a map attached to it. So you think of each row on a spreadsheet where you've got the dates, the species, um, whatever you can think of. Imagine all of them also have just like an easting northern coordinate. So it's a point on a map um, or they are a polygon on a map or a line. That's what it is. So it's mapping out um, information with the data attached to it. So the easiest one to sort of think about is um, a species record which will be a point on the map of where that species was seen or a polygon where the species was seen in an area if you don't have an exact coordinate. Um, and then you've got all of the information attached to that one point. So you can do some really interesting things with that. And remote sensing um, is getting that data without actually having to go in the field or without having to record each point automatically. So that might be from satellites, because we can get some really high-quality satellite imagery nowadays. Um, or it might be from drones. So you can fly a drone over a site and then use that for that sort of 
photography or that video you've taken to um, assess the habitat type, get the height of the trees, all of that. So it's kind of shortcuts, basically, um, to reduce the sort of time it takes to get that environmental data. What kind of information can you get from uh, this type of data gathering? Um, all sorts, really. It's quite difficult to do on a county scale. There's a lot of conservation in the UK with wildlife trusts being probably one to three counties, with record centres being similar, um, and with sort of organisations, only the RSPB and big national ones really doing things on that scale. Um, and also being a fairly poor industry in that we don't have huge amounts of capital, we don't have huge amounts of money to spend on things. We have to kind of use what other people are doing, like Google have got their sort of satellite imagery. We got to kind of hijack on that. We can't do stuff on our own. So it is quite difficult sometimes to get the resolution of information you need um, for like a reserve rather than a whole country. But you can kind of get, you can estimate habitat type. So you can say whether it's grasslands, woodlands, scrub, but you can also get sort of based on things like the um, colours of different species, you can say whether, because coniferous woodland, if you think about it, is much darker green than broadleafed. So you can kind of get that level of detail. Um, and then if you get the drone out, which is much higher resolution, you can get all sorts of information like on plant health, photosynthetic activity and things like that through kind of multispectral imagery as well as just normal photos. Um, so it's really, really clever and you can do a lot of it, but it just depends on how much time and money you've got to put into it as to how much you can get out, which is the balance we always have to sort of strike as a charity. Of course. And then once you sort of collected this data, what sort of purposes is it uh, afforded? Uh, probably primarily for um, monitoring biodiversity in Kent. Um, so, for example, with the Bleem Project, we'll be monitoring the bison's effect. We'll be monitoring how um, the coniferous to deciduous woodland changes, whether there's more broadleaf trees and fewer um, sort of non-native pine trees in that area. Um, and then as a Kent as a whole, we've got a target of the restoring 30% of Kent's wild um, sort of land, managing 30% of Kent's land for wildlife. Um, and so obviously we need to track that. We need to know if we are hitting that goal, um, which is exactly what this sort of technology can do. So we can see how it, the satellite images have changed over the last five years and see if there are more pockets of green space and do what we can to assess the sort of quality of them. All right, okay. And when once you have these sort of images and you can see, if, for example, as you said, it's coniferous or broadleaf, different by colour or um, the effects that the bison may or may not be having. Is it, so man, practically speaking, so you've got the map, are you then sort of like just manually drawing rings around certain parts that have changed or does, does the drone pick up on it uh, automatically? How exactly is the... Uh, is that, is that carried out? Um, it depends really what you want to do. So with, for example, with the bison, um, and Lawrence will be able to talk to this a little bit more, but what we're doing is taking samples in the areas that we know the bison are, in the areas that they aren't, um, and then we'll compare how those work. So with the um, with Bleen, we've got the bison in one area, and we've got longhorn cattle in the other as the proxy, and then we've got an area with no grazing in, so we take drone samples in each of those areas and then compare how they change. If the bison area changes more than with the longhorns, we know the bison have a greater effect. Um, and then we can overlay that with the GPS tracking data from their collars to see if the areas where the bison spend more time are even more affected to sort of see what that correlation is. Okay, and what are some of the expected or unexpected or hoped for effects that bison are likely or 
could well bring. Yeah, so we think, so the Blean is a um, massive area of ancient woodland, but it is, um, was a plantation for a long time. Plantations generally plant lots and lots of rows of um, coniferous trees because they grow quicker than deciduous, um, which grow very quickly in rows, grow very tall, and then block out all of the light because they never lose their leaves. Um, and just the they're more dense with the pine needles compared to um, sort of deciduous ground oak tree. Lots of light can filter through, whereas with the pine tree it can't. And so what we're hoping for is that we've done a lot of clearing already of the sort of non-native species. And we're hoping the bison will come in, they'll continue that work, they'll prevent any more pine trees from sort of popping up because they rub against them, they'll eat the bark, they'll trample them, um, obviously being a, a lot bigger than are sort of natural grazers, even though these are natural to the ecosystem, but they haven't been here for 10,000 years. Um, they'll have a greater effect on sort of preventing those trees. And they'll also knock down some of the younger um, deciduous trees, the native ones, they will still affect those. But what they'll do in that is create clearings where you can get more sunlight in. So they will have different species. Um, we'll have things like Ephratillary butterfly, which love um, that sort of habitat coming back, which is a key sort of monitoring project that we're doing and they'll also be kind of dust bathing trampling through they'll just basically cause havoc um which will break up that ecosystem so it's not just one massive stretch of woodland it's a nice mosaic of a bit of woodland some clearings some dust bar some sort of dusty sandy areas um with nice corridors going through and it just makes it a much more diverse habitat which will attract loads more animals um and be tons better for our biodiversity than it sort of currently is and it will definitely better than it was 20 years ago when it was all plantation. Good stuff. Okay, so would you like to tell me a little bit about uh, bison collars, which you mentioned before we uh, mm -hmm. started recording? Yeah, so we've got some really interesting challenges in the Bleem project, and we've overcome them in a really cool way, I think, but I would say that because I helped do it. Um, so Bleem, infrastructure-wise, even though it's 10 minutes from Canterbury, which is obviously a major city, um, has similar infrastructure to a rural remote african reserve there is no power there is no mobile signal no wi-fi um it's full of mud when it's wet um it's very difficult to get around so it's a massive challenge to kind of set up a lot of these things a lot of the on the ground team have dealt with these challenges such as getting all the fencing in um to keep the bison safe and all of that but what we've had to deal with is um, the lack of mobile signal and the dense, dense canopy of the trees, meaning that radio waves will not travel because um, the radio will just get blocked off by a wall of trees. Um, so GPS collars for animals, the GPS will work the same no matter what. But to actually receive the data from the collar, you've, kind of, you've got to have a connection to it either through a radio receiver so it can ping the... Um, location coordinates on a sort of frequency or via like um, 4G because then it can send it to a database via the mobile signal. Neither of those are options at Lean. So we kind of have this, we have this problem of how on earth do we get these, this data every 20 minutes or every five minutes because we need to know where the bison are at all times. So we know if they, act, if they do break out, um, but also so we know where they're spending their time, which can help our management decisions and help us see their effects. Um, so what we've done is used, um, we found a company called Smart Parks, who are based in the Netherlands, um, who specialise in working in these sort of remote African reserves. And have, um, the reason we got in touch with them is because they provided the collars for the crab slack 
uh, bison project which we kind of worked quite closely with and were almost like inspiration and we learned a lot from um, which is a netherlands based um rewilding project where they released bison on sort of sand dunes so firstly we knew their collars would work on bison because bison are notoriously um difficult to collar because they're the males especially very rough they will break the collars with their dust bathing and their um sort of where they rub against trees they'll damage them very easily and they've got specific sort of biothane collars which are very strong but also very light so you can get a very very strong collar um without actually harming the animal or making them sort of take any more weight around but the main thing they do is use technology called LoRaWAN, which i had not heard of before um and is um essentially long range low power wi-fi so it's like our Wi-Fi, but it can only handle tiny little packets of data. So it's probably like Wi-Fi at my grand's house, for example, in that it can't do anything. Um, but it can work over a very long range. So you have one sort of basically a router, and that will sort of do a good two, three kilometers line of sight around. Um, and so we've set up three of those at the Bleen. Um, one, one at our ranger station, one at our partners Wildwood, and then one at one of our... Um, Kind of outposts i guess um about a mile away which kind of covers the south end because it's on a hill and so it can see quite far um and the collars so it's a closed network and the collars will ping to those um routers across that network um and as it's a sort of closed system nothing else can get on that so it's not like using radio where you've kind of got if someone gets your frequency they can get your data um and we're not using 4g which means we don't have to pay for sim cards and things like that um but yeah, it's it's a really cool system that it's the first time it's ever been used in the UK, um, and it's kind of groundbreaking, really, which is really exciting for us. Really exciting, and th the data that uh, feeds back is location. Yeah, it's location, it's time. Um, we can see how close they are to each other, and we're also it will record sort of um, accelerometer information, which is their X Y Z coordinates. So you can kind of try and match that to behaviours. So say we put them on our captive bison we see this pattern looks like what they do when they dust bathe we can then match that to what the wild bison are doing so we can say this is probably when they're dust bathing and see how that affects everything oh it's really fascinating mm -hmm. okay so tell me a little bit more about um some of the other things you've got going on so you mentioned uh, mobile mapping as another uh, little technology yes um so a big area where this is basically my way of getting the um sort of field surveyors to like me um, because what they have to do is they go out in the fields, they are incredibly skilled at habitat identification, species records, they'll note all that down on a clipboard, and then they have to come back and they have to plug it in a spreadsheet, or they'll have to give it to an assistant who will plug it into a spreadsheet, which doubles the time, essentially, because they're out in the field doing this work, and then you have to input the data. And the, especially with the bleeding, the amount of stuff they're doing is crazy detailed. Um, like it takes a good two hours for Cora, who's our monitoring evidence ecologist, um, to do a. Um, I think it's a two meter circle um she has to identify every single plant species within that area it takes her two hours per and we've got 144 of those across the bleen so it's a good 300 hours just on the identification yeah. and if she has to put all of that into a spreadsheet or a database afterwards that's a good m month of work extra and it's also very boring work because you're just plugging numbers in so what we've done is um integrated our gis software with mobile mapping so you can get an app on your phone and we can have our gis projects which are our mapping projects come up on the phone so they can either draw a new point um, or click on something we've already made for them 
and then just fill in a form mm. for sort of this species is here, this species is not, this is high abundance, the weather was this, and then click sync, and that goes back to our database straight away. So we have that live information, and it means they only have to do it once. They don't have to report back and fill it in and do the boring stuff. Um, and it's also easy to use because then they can see where they are on the map. They don't have to sort of remember a grid reference or anything like that. So there's a lot of, lot of pros, and it's been very popular so far. Fantastic. Okay. And what other kinds of technology could we hope to see in the coming years or, or already been used in perhaps another country on a different context that could be here in the, in the coming years? Yeah, so I think the, the UK conservation sector is kind of gradually catching up. There's more and more appetite to do this. GIS is a big, a big way of sort of getting people on board because it's kind of like a, a gateway into data analysis and data management and these sort of improved practices. Um, the main thing I think is, is ways like mobile mapping because there's a lot of other sort of similar things because there's still a lot of reliance on manually inputting spreadsheets or manually drawing on a map um, in sort of ecology and conservation in the UK. And that can all be kind of removed either through automatic processes, through remote sensing, using satellites to sort of get your field boundaries rather than having to do them yourself um, or through mobile mapping. And you only do it once, you do it when you're in the field, when you can actually see the shape rather than when you're trying to sort of draw on a map and then try and remember what that shading meant or what that code was. So I think that's the main way is that we want to kind of see generally improved workflows across the sort of organization from field surveyor to um, kind of report writing, because that can all be one process where if the surveyor is doing the right thing, you click one button, it does all the analysis, does a report for you each year if you do it right. Whereas um, obviously that takes time to skills to set up so people mostly will do annual reports or sort of five-year reports. Every year, three, five years, they'll do the same thing, step-by-step, step, click buttons, whereas that could be done all in one go. Um, it could be automatic. You could schedule it and then schedule it to email the PDF of the report out to your trustees whenever they need it. So you don't even have to have someone thinking about it. But it's getting the space to sort of set that up is the challenge because we're all so busy we're working on very low capacity because there's not much money and we're all trying to save the world, essentially. Um, so what I love about Ken Wildlife Trust is we've got the support from senior management to set these things up and to take a little bit of extra time to do things so we do them right, which means next year and the year after, we barely have to spend any time on them. Um, but the challenge is getting that little bit of time carved out. But the exciting thing is that that's happening more and more and people are more sensing how useful it is. Um, so we could be looking at a much more efficient sector within five, ten years, um, which means everyone's got more time to do the important things of engaging with people, doing the practical conservation and knowing it works. And do you think funding is increasing along with that or is, is sort of predicted to increase as people begin to see these, uh, these great benefits? I think so. Um, there's definitely more fundraising opportunities for um, technical things. We're seeing them from Natural England, we're seeing them from um, the lottery. Um, there are specific fundraising schemes for technical advancement and challenges and things like that, which is really promising. The other area more depends on um, individual leaders of organisations, so chief execs and senior management. Um, and it does vary based on where you are and based on just the personnel you've got. But we're seeing more and more people enthusiastic about this. And I think as hopefully people see Kent really taking a lead and sort of innovating this, we're, rather than creating sort of 
spreadsheets, we're creating apps for people to use as calculators and things like that. Hopefully people see that and catch on and say, this is much better as a marketable product. This is a much easier way of working. We want to try and do a similar thing. Um, that's my sort of hope as trying to do this in my little corner of the country and hoping that it spreads out. And I know there's people doing it in other little corners of the country and it will just spread um, and meet in the middle. Um, it is just people-led at the moment and hopefully it'll be strategy-led within a couple of years. And if someone would like to get involved or sort of, you know, um, perhaps seek out training to sort of start uh, working in your field or you know, leading up to it, how, how would they get into it? Yeah, it's a tricky one. Um, and it does depend on universities um, because some uni courses are really good and they'll have um, a good introduction to GIS, introduction to R, which is the coding language that I use, um, which kind of helps a lot. Um, and then some universities still focus a lot on the kind of using Excel for your statistical analysis and not really looking at maps and anything like that. So if you're listening to it as kind of someone who's looking to do a degree or a master's, um, have a look at what the university is doing in terms of the, the modules on offer. Is there a GIS module? Is there a statistical analysis module? Is there sort of a programming language module? Because um, that's the best way to do it from a, I'm a biologist, I want to do this work. That's the kind of gateway in. Um, and after that point, it's just the enthusiasm. If you enjoy it, pick it up on your own time within your CV or your um, cover letter. Maybe do it as a website rather than just as a static Word document or PDF. Try and include some nice maps and things. Make a Twitter account to show off what you're doing. Make a GitHub account to share your code. Things like that is all really good for employers. Um, and there's a huge amount of resources out there, um, either QGIS or R, which are my two recommendations. Just Google R training course, the letter R, or QGIS training course, and there's loads out there. And just pick it up and try and enjoy it and see how you how you do. And then we are coming in as a sector at quite a ground level. Most people's experience of this is from statistical analysis rather than actually sort of proper, I guess, workflow analysis and work um, sort of automation. So if you come in with some enthusiasm with these ideas, you don't need a full two-year training course in GIS or anything. You just need a couple of weeks looking at this thing, a couple of months of just playing with it on your own time and then show that enthusiasm and you can really make a difference. Fantastic. And Robbie, where can people follow you, uh, find out about the remote sensing and what you're doing down in uh, Kent and Blink? Um, yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn as Robbie Still, um, and you'll see me as Kent Wildlife Trust Digital Transformation Officer. Um, I'm on Twitter as DataRobbie1. Um, and I've got my own blog, which I haven't updated in a good year and a half. Um, but if you want to have a look at what I used to do, um, it's called RobbieStats.com. Um, and it looks at women's football, ecology, all sorts of cool things that you could sort of apply data analysis to. Fantastic. Robbie, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you.